Hello, everybody. Welcome to this special mini episode of the Naked Security Podcast entitled 20 Years of Cyber Threats. I'm Paul Ducklin, and I'm joined for this episode by John Shire. Hello, John. Hello, Paul. It's been a long time. I'm glad to be talking to you again on a podcast. It has been a long time, hasn't it? So let's let's crack straight on because we've got 20 years to get through. The reason for the title, 20 Years of Cyber Threats, is that you recently published a paper with exactly that title. It wasn't as though you'd taken 20 years of malware and analysed each and every one. You were looking more at how the evolution of the threat over the last 20 years has dictated the necessary changes in our response. Maybe you want to tell us a little bit about what you do at Sophos and why dealing with threats as an issue rather than as a load of individual little problemettes uh, is very important to you. Right, yeah. So I work in the office of the CTO doing research into security as a whole, writ large, not just focused on email or on you know droppers or whatever. I look at the whole landscape and try to understand what is happening with respect to malware and cyber threats, what tactics are the cyber criminals using, but also what do we have in our toolkit in order to combat these things and, and in what way do we need to organize them and put them together to have the best defense possible. And then I also talk to, I spend a lot of time going to conferences and I talk to customers and partners and I, you know, I ask them, how are things going? What are you doing? What, what interesting things are you doing with our technology, other technologies to protect against cyber threats? Then I, I use that to give advice to the media, to consumers, to customers, partners, to anybody who'll listen, really. My family's getting really sick and tired of me at this point. But just trying to give people some practical uh, advice that they can put into place today to help them battle cyber threats. Because sometimes it's the easy things, at least from a theoretical point of view, that are the hardest to do, aren't they? A little bit of a cliche that I like to use. Sometimes there are bridges that we need to force ourselves to cross in the world of cybersecurity for the greater good of all. That's right. I mean, we, we, we talk a lot about herd immunity these days for very different reasons. But we do have a cyber herd immunity as well within our industry because the more people do the right thing or just enough of the right thing, the better everybody else is protected, right? And so the reason I picked 20 years was for a couple of reasons. It's a nice round number. Uh, it's when I really started in my career within the security space, and it kind of was also the birth of the security industry itself when it became an actual, you know, real bona fide industry and a, and a professional discipline worth uh, pursuing. And so I'm looking at this timeline and saying what kinds of things, what events happened, but, and, and why were they important? Why were they impactful? But more importantly, how did we respond and what did we do about it? And this whole idea of the, you know, this onslaught of worms that we had in that first part, you know, what I called the, the, uh, the worm era, uh, was one of those areas where we, we saw all these worms come at us. We weren't great at defending against them. We started changing the ways we did things like network segregation and network filtering. We started changing the way that we handled um, email attachments, for example, and Microsoft made some changes. 
And they also started Patch Tuesday, right? Which forever changed the way we do updating. Like when's the last time you've updated your browser? You haven't, it just does it itself, right? And so things like that had a real, a real tangible impact on our industry going forward. Yes, I think the fact that you started with that, what you called the worm era is quite telling because that made it clear that when you're fighting cyber threats, it's not just about keeping the bad stuff out. It's, it's not just about, oh, well, somebody's trying to attack me from the outside. It's also about the impact you might have on the rest of the world if your defenses aren't good enough and you end up being the person who's sending out 500,000 infected I love you emails a day or 500 million code red infected packets, which even if they reach other people who are immune to that malware because they've patched, you're still causing society at large, if you like, a huge hassle by what you haven't done and what you're allowing to escape from your network. Exactly. And you've, you've got to think of all the different area, the different places within the network, the different areas where things can go wrong, and then start putting in security mitigations, right? And, and what, I guess, exacerbated this worm error was just the, the connectivity. So again, in 2000, around that time, things became a lot more connected. And it was, it was at that point really easy for cyber criminals to go, okay, well, if I want to cause a lot of damage, I just send this one thing out that can self-replicate and off it goes. It takes off because everything was interconnected back in those days. I remember being at a conference in the 90s where somebody presented a paper where they'd measured, I think it was like sort of the median time for new malware that six months before had been unknown, but now was widespread. The median time for it to become what you would consider in the wild was about three months, believe it or not. Now, you know, you, we get malware attacks that, and, and scamming attacks and phishing attacks that come and go in hours or even minutes. Yeah. And so you have now this, this you know, interconnected world where it's really easy to let stuff loose. We can see, uh, you know, cyber criminals can see that they can launch stuff at scale. But for the most part, the, you know, this, this era was more about disruption. There was not really any kind of other motive, but you started seeing the inklings at the very tail of this, this era. We started seeing botnets being amassed and, and being put together with some of these worms. And the spam started rising and we started really getting a sense that the criminals were on to the next thing, which was monetizing all these infections, right? Knowing that I can reach out and touch a million PCs within you know, the blink of an eye meant that if I can somehow turn that infection into dollars, then there's gold in them there, Hills. Yes, yeah, so that was the beginning of things, I guess, like malvertising, ad fraud, banking trojans that went after passwords in bulk. Well, and you had things like the black hole exploit kit, right? The I, I used to call this the glue that held the cyber criminal underground empire together, right? It, it was you had the the person who was running the kit who would hire or if maybe they, some of these guys develop these things themselves, but would hire people to, or, or buy zero days off people. They would hire people to do traffic direction. They would hire, uh, or they would at least contract with them. And then somebody else would contract with the, the exploit kit guys to deploy their malware, right? So there was just this complete tying together of the different elements of the cyber criminal ecosystem where if you were an expert at doing drive-by downloads, okay, well, just do that and then sell that those services to an exploit kid guy. He'll, he'll knit everything else together. Yes, it was almost a, a dial of yield, wasn't it? You, you no longer had to show your chops as an assembler programmer. 
like you did to you know write the whatever it was 300 odd bytes of the code red or the sql slammer worm right so so now we've got this way of distributing malware we've got this way of making money off malware and crooks were trying different things right and one of the things they tried at one point was fake av so they would pretend to find an uh, an, an issue on your computer a and virus that all the other security products missed that's right so they would uh, they would charge you like $75 right to to clean up to clean up your computer and that eventually got shut down and so they moved to something else they got a little bit more pernicious they were like okay well now we're going to pretend we're the police and we've seen pornography or stolen copyrighted materials in your computer and we're going to fine you on the spot and because they couldn't use payment cards anymore like visa mastercard american express because that had been shut down uh, as an avenue for them to accept payment they started doing things like prepaid cards like green dot money pack and ucash and, and paysafe card and so now there was you know a, a slightly more I don't know, aggressive lure, if you will, or, or, or reason for you to pay up. And there was this other alternate payment technology that they could use. And John, no matter how far-fetched some of those police locker scams sounded, the crooks, in my opinion, they were very definitely following trends that had started in the legitimate world. It was around that time that it actually, you didn't need to go to court anymore to pay parking fines. You could actually pay them online, and even in some countries, speeding fines. So it wasn't so far-fetched, this idea of, well, there's a police charge against you, and you can decriminalize it and pay it off online. That was happening in the real world, and the crooks just made their world mirror, at least in part, what was happening in real life. Yeah, we've, we've, we see this a lot with criminals, they'll, they'll take the path of least resistance. And if we're already accustomed to doing things online uh, and paying fines, for example, which is a great example that you've just made, uh, then why not try to abuse that? And, and we see this time and time again of cyber criminals just going, looking at the world and going, okay, what are people used to? What are they gravitating towards? Okay, let's see if we can build a scam around that. So, John, if, I, if you don't mind me jumping forward a bit, you know, this idea of copying what's going on in real life because we're less likely to notice, that's something that we're seeing very strongly these days, isn't it? And that's a technique that's been dubbed living off the land, where it's almost like the crooks try to use the least sophisticated techniques they can, or if they're going to use, you know, sophisticated hacking tools, they won't bring their own they'll use software that's probably already on your network, or that if it were to appear on your network, you'd probably think, oh, that's just my security team getting busy. Yeah, I think that cyber criminals today are trying to blend in as much as possible. And really, and you use that term living off the land, which is probably familiar to a lot of listeners, um, you know, it's, it's, it's looking around you and using the resources at your disposal because bringing something in could probably trigger an alarm, right? If you start, if, if the network already has things like uh, PSExec or, you know, PowerShell, right? It's on every computer, it's on every Windows 10 machine, unless you've removed it. And so, and it's extremely powerful. It can actually do the encryption for you or it can fetch additional payloads. So if I can just hide in plain sight, and, and what's worrying to me right now is if we look at some of the cyber kernels, the higher end, more skilled guys, they'll do this sort of hands-on stuff themselves, right? And then at the bottom end, you've got these lower skilled cyber criminals, which can't necessarily do it themselves because they don't have the skill, but then they buy a toolkit like Dharma, which just has all the tools bundled in and you just press buttons on a keyboard 
And uh, you know, option 42 gets you a, a PowerShell command line, and option 52 gets you the RDP client. And then if we go at the other extreme end, the, the nation state guys, ironically, I think the, the highly skilled criminals learned off the nation state actors of how to operate. And now the nation state actors seem to be, and the APT group seem to be going, okay, well, we're just going to do what all these other guys are doing, what you know, the, the regular cyber criminals are, are doing, because we'll just blend in at that point. And it'll look like we're, uh, you know, we're the Ryak gang, where in fact we are, insert country here. Part of what's working really well is taking what we've already got and using it for bad instead of good. I suppose a great example of that is RDP, isn't it? And lots of people have gone, oh, I had all these RDP portals open to the outside world. That was a mistake. I've shut them off. Job done. Problem sorted. But of course, once the crooks are inside, if you've got RDP inside your network, they're going to use that as their tool for moving around and infecting every single computer, server, and virtual machine you've got, rather than trying to use some more esoteric way of getting in that, as you say, might trigger an alarm. Whereas if someone sees RDP sessions, they'll think, golly, the, the sysadmins are putting in an awful lot of work this week. Good for them. And because most of these guys, when they get access and they finally, you know, escalate their privileges enough where they're domain admin, they're you. There's no difference between what you do and what they do because they're using either your compromised account or they've created their own domain admin account and using a you know, plausible nomenclature that was just going to fly under the radar enough. And when it comes time to deploying the ransomware, if that's the payload of choice, they're just going to use your deployment tools. They're going to use your software deployment tools. They'll schedule a time when you're, you know, on the weekend when you're sleeping and they'll just press go and you wake up on a Sunday morning or Monday morning and now all of a sudden you've got a massive problem on your hands. And then you discover that those automated cloud backup commands that you've run every day for the last month have in fact not been uploading your data to your cloud account, but to another cloud account created by the crooks. And they've used your own tools and the stuff that you prepared to keep your network secure They've used it to run off all your data, which they will now use to increase the extortion demands to these incredible tens of million dollar levels that we're seeing these days. Yeah, and I think that's, that's the worst part of where we're at right now within the ransomware era and what criminals are doing is they, they're now using that social pressure aspect of we, it doesn't matter that you have a backup and you can restore all your files and be back up and running fairly quickly. We've got your data, and if if you know if there's data privacy issues from things like GDPR or or some other data protection law, um, you know if there's customer issues, it just it just compounds the problem so much more, and it it, it forces companies' hands that would normally not pay to to now start to consider that they might pay the ransom just because they want the crooks to I'm going to use air quotes here to delete the data, right? Again, we're talking about criminals here, so who knows if they actually do it. But um, so that 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 really worries me. And and I even I read an article. Now we can take this with a grain of salt. Of somebody had had interviewed the one of the Revil guys, and he basically said, if if he is to be, be believed, again being a criminal, uh, that they're kind of done with the whole data encry encryption piece. All they really need to do at this point is steal the data, and it's it's almost worse. I remember speaking not long ago to Peter McKenzie of our managed threat response team about uh, a ransomware incident that they were called in to help with. And in this case, don't, you know, get your head around this. The crooks had got enough information about the company that when they wanted to put the squeeze on, they actually called up 
the sysadministrator, they were using a voice changer, so it sounded like a little kid, and they said to the guy, look, let's, let's prove how serious they are. And they started reading out his personal information. Like they said, your full name is so-and-so, your date of birth, and they read out his social security number. It doesn't get much more confronting than that. No, it doesn't. And so, you know, part of the part of the paper is also talking about, like I said, you know, what our responses were. And we've had some good responses along the way. And, and we've gotten to this point now with ransomware that it's you can't just do one thing. You can't be good at one thing, just like the cyber criminals, you know, they, they can specialize. We have to do almost a little bit of everything and a little bit of everything just right in order to protect against ransomware. You've got, to, you've got to patch, you've got to not expose services, you've got to use two-factor authentication, you've got to use uh, security products on your servers as well as your desktops. You've got to make sure that you're doing application testing uh, if you're creating applications, you know, secure code reviews. You've got to do it all because if you don't, somebody's going to find a way in. And that, that's, that's, where we're, that's why security is hard these days is because we have so many moving parts. We've made such progress at, at battening down the hatches. But at the same time, one little chink in the armor could be you having a $30 million ransom. So, John, I think the, the key takeaways from your 20 years of cyber threats aren't so much the individual threats themselves, although do go and read the paper because it, it's a fascinating saga or a journey. My big takeaway from it is, is what you've just been talking about, namely that there's no way these days that we can operate perhaps as we did five or 10 years ago, where cybersecurity is a question of try and defend, see a problem, rush in, fix it, pat self on back, wait for next problem. Because today's problem, like malware that you've detected on one computer, fixing it might be irrelevant. Because what you might be seeing is you might be seeing the crooks doing a practice run to learn how your defenses work for the big one that's coming in 24 hours time. That's, that's exactly right. And, and we've seen that happen time and time again in, in many of our rapid response investigations. Yeah, you need to, you need to not only prevent, obviously, that's, that's the number one job, but then you need to detect and then you need to investigate and then you need to remediate those issues, right? Why did, how did it succeed in the first place? And then you go back to prevention again, and this is ongoing cycle. And uh, the the message, you know, the overall message at the end of the paper is just that this battle that we've been fighting with these guys, it, for the people that are in the trenches doing this stuff every day, you know, it matters. You're doing a good job. You're. It might not seem like you're winning all the time, but we are getting better. We are making the world more safe and secure online by the work that's being done, not only with the frontline people that are battling these things, but with the policies and the technologies that we're inventing. And, uh, you know, the fight is a noble one. It's an honorable fight. If we keep doing it together, we've gotten so much better at cooperation with all the, the ISACs and the hacker cons and all the working groups. And, you know, let's keep doing that. Let's keep fighting that fight. Let's keep making the world more secure. And let's have, you know, let's see what the next 20 years brings. So it sounds as though one of the key questions that we have to be much more prepared to ask, obviously, the what is important and how are we going to fix it? But just as important is understanding why it happened, because if we don't understand why, then we're going to fall into that category of people, you know, those people who cannot remember history are condemned to repeat it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree with that one 100%. This comes on the heels of our, us releasing our threat report. And I, I said in the introduction that, you know, threat reports, it kind of give you a snapshot over a year. The long view gives you 
it gives you an ability to look at trends and it looks you can see things changing and evolving over time and i think now is also the time when we start going from this point forward any of the changes that we make we should have that forward looking view as well how might this change in 5 years and i know it's tough to predict the future especially in technology but how might things be different in 5 years if if this technology advancement goes through right if we get quantum computing for example right um, now we're probably going to require a thousand character passwords. We also should start to think about, we need to start thinking about how the things we're doing today are going to impact us tomorrow. So it really is about looking, again, 360 degrees, right? It's, it's what's happening now, what happened before us, and where are we going? Where do we want to be? And that, that's what security is all about today. John, I think that's a fantastic and very upbeat way to end. So if people want to read your report, where can they find it? They can go to news.sophos.com and search for 20 years and the paper will come up. Thanks so much for your time, John. It's great to have such a passionate security evangelist on the side of good. Uh, and thanks for listening, everybody. And until next time, stay secure.